Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. This is a very sophisticated science joke. A neutron walks into a bar and asks, how much for a beer? The bartender says, for you, no charge. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you everything you need to win this week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from acclaimed author Marissa Silver. That'll help break the ice. Her new novel, Mary Coyne, just came out, and we'll hear her read an excerpt later. Plus, we'll speak with Harmony Corrine, director of the new movie, Spring Breakers. Also coming up, actor Chris O'Dowd lists some out-of-nowhere success stories. Emily Post's great-great-grandchildren answer your etiquette questions. And two delicious foods meet and mate, ramen and ravioli. They're such a cute, alliterative couple, those two. They'll have beautiful children. But first up, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. In Cyprus, cabinet and political leaders working to stave off bankruptcy. March madness is upon us. Mr. Obama is visiting the West Bank. In reaching out to both sides, the president is trying to build trust to eventually restart the peace process. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Sadie Stein. She is the deputy editor of the Paris Review. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, one thing that's been very much on my mind is KFC's new PR campaign. KFC PR. That's a good chunk of the alphabet. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps you It's like their heard. first aid program. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you're already familiar with Operation Thunder. I, I am not. What? Are you, Rico? No. <laughs> Tell us more. Well, it turns out the Chinese eating public was revolted when they learned that KFC chickens were pumped full of growth hormone, uh, matured for like a week, and were then slaughtered and eaten. <laughs> and as a result, KFC has been forced to launch Operation Thunder. This, this is a PR campaign. Operation Thunder involves poetry. KFC is sponsoring a poetry competition in which you have to include the sentiment, the chickens are innocent. <laughs> don't punish the chickens. For... Oh, so don't not eat our chickens. Yeah, because it's not they were... their fault because they were pumped full of, of chemicals. They're innocent <laughs> victims. So you write the poetry, and if you win, you get an iPad mini. But wait, I have to ask, like, you know, China's <laughs> flipping out over KFC's food practices. Isn't this the country that gave us tainted baby food a few years ago? Well, I think it's, they just were more distressed, I think, at the age of the chicken. That they matured so quickly. Exactly. Yeah. I like that to battle this, they had a poetry contest. In America, we would have like a bikini contest. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the hips are it's, innocent, I guess, would be your... <laughs> something of that nature. Um, and when I think of chickens and poetry, I think of William Carlos Williams. Oh, right, who wrote the uh, famed chicken poem. A red wheelbarrow beside the white chickens. He would have won. He would have won, and apparently it's working pretty well because sales are back up, and KFC defiantly never issued an apology. Whoa. They merely asserted that the chickens were innocent, demanded poetry, <laughs> called it Operation Thunder, and called it a day. That's the power <laughs> of literature. Mm -hmm, exactly. <laughs> Sadie Stein, thanks so much for the small talk. Anytime. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a mighty gorge through which flows a Niagara Falls of booze. And that is a geographically apt metaphor for today's history lesson. This week in Canada, back in 1892, the most notorious punch bowl in North America was purchased. Not that the bar for punch bowl notoriety is all that high. No. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Sometimes one of the top prizes in sports gets no respect. 
It all began in 1886, when British politician Lord Frederick Stanley arrived in the colony of Canada. His job? To represent Queen Victoria as Canada's Governor General. Stanley and his family loved the Great White North, especially Canadians' favorite sport, something called ice hockey. But the game was still in its infancy. The best team in a given year didn't even get a trophy, so Stanley decided to fix that. In March 1892, he bought a silver punch bowl for the 19th century equivalent of a thousand bucks, engraved it with the words from Stanley of Preston, and voila, the Stanley Cup. Stanley donated it with one big condition, that no team actually own it. A team that won it one year had to hand it over to the next year's winners and so on. Which may be why some teams don't bother to take particularly good care of it. In 1909, the winning team kicked the cup into a canal and left it there overnight while they partied. Fifteen years later, another team's players forgot it by the side of the road after fixing a tire. At one point, it was lent to a photographer whose mom used it as a pot for her plants. And more recently, players have taken it to strip clubs, tossed it into swimming pools, and let their babies sit and uh, do other things in it. Lord Stanley never had to witness the abuses his cup endured. A few months after he bought it, his brother, a British Earl, died. And Stanley had to sail back home to take his place. He never saw a single Stanley Cup championship. So that's the history. Now for a drink to serve with it. I'm speaking with Brian Grant. He is bar manager at Poor House Restaurant in Vancouver, very near a park named after Lord Stanley. Brian, what cocktail did that history inspire you to make? It's called uh, Stanley's Lament. Um, the lament part comes from uh, Lord Stanley never even got to see a real final plate. That's right. Um, so there's no ice in this, basically, I guess would be the, the main way to symbolize that. No ice, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's an it's a up cocktail. That's right. All right. What is in this thing? My, my cocktail consists of, I did an ounce of uh, Canadian straight rye whiskey. Of course. Um, a quarter of an ounce of Benedictine. All right. A quarter of an ounce of Fernand Branca. Wow. And a little bit of Angostura bitters, and that gets stirred together and then put into a coupe or a cup, as we know, the Stanley Cup, uh, <laughs> topped off with champagne, which is kind of uh, festive, and that's what you get to drink out of it when you win the uh, the Stanley Cup there. So oh, that's right. All the players get to drink champagne out of it, right? after, Like right there on the ice after they win. Exactly, yeah. But uh, also there's a little dash of maple syrup in there just to balance it out as well. Of course. Uh, can make a Canadian cocktail without maple syrup in a bit cliche, but there you are. <laughs> sure. Do, do you put some French fries and gravy in there, too, just to make it super Canadian? No poutine. <laughs> yeah, you can eat that with it, though. I think it'd probably be a good side dish. That's a good Canadian way to go. But uh, but should, do you serve this? I mean, it seems to me that the most important part of this drink is going to be the cup. Do you have, like, a special silver cup to serve this thing in? Well, yeah, I think that I was going to say, you know, if you happen to have a ornate silver cup just lying around the house, that'd probably be a pretty good vessel to serve this in. If yeah. not, I think a regular cocktail coupe would do nicely. That's yeah. fine. And just when you're done, just toss it aside and don't give a damn about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just fling it off the balcony or something or into a pool. And Brendan, I should say there's a recent tradition that when a team wins the cup, each player and staff member get to haul it around with them for a day. Yikes. Yeah. Call out the hand sanitizer. Yes. One player baptized his child in the cup. And another let the winning Kentucky Derby horse eat oats out of it. 
That's and then and then they hand it over to next year's winners and they all kiss it. That's right. Sounds hygienic. It's ill advised. Good thing Canada has national health care. <laughs> That's true. Uh, folks, our cocktails are germ free. I think. Find the recipes at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is actor Chris O'Dowd. Most Americans know him as the charming cop from the movie Bridesmaids. He also starred in the last season of HBO's Girls. This week, his film The Sapphires opens in U.S. theaters. It tells the true story of an unlikely 1960s singing sensation. Here's Chris to tell us about it and the list it inspired. Hi, I'm Chris O'Dowd. I'm currently starring in a film called The Sapphires which is a rags-to-riches story about four girls from the outback in Australia who tour Vietnam singing for the American military during the war in 68 and 69. Their kind of success came from nowhere, helped along by the character that I played, Dave Lovelace. And here's another few out-of-nowhere success stories that I'd like to talk to you about. Who would have thought that Irish people knew anything about soul music? We are the whitest group of people that have ever lived. We're basically see-through. So when the movie The Commitments came along and taught us all a little bit about soul and Otis Redding and Curtis Mayfield and all that kind of stuff, it came from nowhere. But it worked because, as Jimmy says in the movie, The Irish are the blacks of Europe and Dubliners are the blacks of Ireland. And the Northside Dubliners are the Blacks of Dublin. So say it once, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. I remember the first time I saw The Commitments would have been sneaking into a movie theatre because it was probably, you know, our race. And I would have been, I think, 13 when the movie came out. And everybody was talking about it, like they were talking about the music, but as much just the amount of cursing. It actually has the world record in a movie for the most curse words in a single hour and a half. That was very attractive to me because I love a good curse. Another good success from nowhere would be Ricky Gervais. He was an office worker working in the background of other people's probably not good shows. And he had a boss who was like David Brent. And that is one of the the funniest things that's ever happened, is the creation of that David Brent character with The Office. We are one big happy family here, yeah? Now, I've been trying to welcome you new guys. You know, I didn't want you here, but you're here now. So, you know, well done. Welcome. The character that he's created and the reason that it's so funny is that it's just so well observed. It's something that I could never do because I'm too self-involved. It's like somebody coming up with a joke and going, that's such an easy joke, why didn't I think of that? Uh, if there's one thing I don't like, it's nicknames. They're not helpful. They can be very hurtful. But, you know, to... He used to call Malcolm Kojak. That was affectionate. You know, he was a great detective and a, a fine actor. Well, maybe... I think when I started as a performer, I didn't realise that you could make a... I'm from a very small town in the west of Ireland, and I didn't realise that you could make a career out of comedy. And I, I do love comedy because it's, it's like horror. Like, it's one of the few kind of art forms where you can actually get people to recoil, whether it be with fear or laughter. And I like changing the way a person is sitting in their seat. Well, my next kind of success from nowhere, and this is going to seem odd because as an Irish guy, I resent anybody being successful. And right in the pit of my stomach, this makes me feel uneasy. But 
Rory McIlroy is somebody that I admire hugely. He's the number one golfer in the world. For a par four. He does indeed! <laughs> Ten under par. Welcome to the big time, Rory McIlroy. And he kind of came from nowhere and ended up winning two majors in a year. And it's now better than Tiger Woods. He's got a tennis player and girlfriend and, and all the dreams that an Irishman can really never hope for. And McElroy has finally realized his dream. He has ascended to the top of the world. I play badly. To keep an increasing amount of inconsistency in my golf game, I find that two to three times a year is about my limit. I resent success and even my own. So if I was good at golf, I'd have to shoot my foot off. The guest list from actor Chris O'Dowd, his latest movie, The Sapphires, hits theaters this week. And we should note that we couldn't confirm The Commitments has the most cursing in film history, as Chris said. Hmm. But we can confirm that the F word is heard in that film 1.2 times per minute. The filmmaker's parents must be so proud. True. I agree. Uh, folks, stick around. We'll sample ramen ravioli and speak with director Harmony Kareen when the Dinner Party download returns. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, author Marissa Silver develops a photo into her new novel, Mary Coyne. And later, filmmaker Harmony Kareen tells us about his artistic process. I was listening to pop music and eating Subway sandwiches and, and Dunkin' Donuts and Mountain Dew. He now weighs 1,000 pounds. Yep. But first, it's time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and often we have a celebrity of note answer them, but periodically we have etiquette celebrities answer them. And said celebrities are here today for their monthly visit. They are Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning. They are the great-great-grandkids of Emily Post herself and co-authors of Emily Post Manners, the 18th edition. They also help run the Emily Post Institute in Vermont. Lizzie, Dan, welcome back. Hey. So good to be here. Good to have you guys back. Now, I have to say that sometimes when I say the Emily Post Institute, I say that name, I imagine a kind of insane asylum or like a rehab program where impolite people go to kick the habit of being jerks. You are not alone in that. Lots of people think of us that way. It's very far from the truth. But we are in a a large building that used to be a school building, kind of an old-fashioned brick building. Wait, you kicked the children out of the school? That's pretty impolite. Yeah, we did. We said, you're rude. (laughs) Leave. Yes, they tend to be. You can't have a a manners institute with kids running around. Yeah, no way. They disrupt the butler and the tea service. Seriously. (laughs) All right. All right. Let's begin with our first question here. So we have a listener this week. Oh, sorry. We have a listener every week, hopefully. At least one. And her name is Netta, and it's my mother. Hey, Mom. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, listener. A listener called in with this question. Let's hear it. This is Charlie calling from Connecticut. So let's say you're approaching a, uh, a door to go into a public place like a restaurant or a store, a glass door that swings outward, and somebody's coming out at the same time you're going in. Who has right of way? <laughs> the person entering or the person exiting? And you can throw that up to the folks from uh, Emily Post up in Vermont. Wow. Yeah. Personalized oh. request. The answer is, I mean, it's pretty simple. Just any kind of smaller space, you want to let someone out before you walk in, and it's always easier to hold the door. Now, is there a reason for this? Like the story when you're walking on the street, a guy goes on the outside because, the, you know, 
people carts splashed. would come by and splash yeah. mud or something. Is there a reason why you let people out first? There is always a reason. All, all good manners have reasons. All right. <laughs> see if Dan can come up with um, one. Make it up quick. <laughs> you, you let people out first. At first, it's whoever gets there first. I mean, if one person's clearly ahead of the other, they should just go. But roughly the same time, I would let the person out just because okay. they're leaving. But oftentimes mm. a door opens up swinging out. So it's easier for the person on the outside to open the door and hold it for the other person. You're not trying to reach mm. past someone to hold a door open for them as yeah. they go through. I that see. makes so sense. It's... But the whole letting someone out is just like an elevator. When you have a smaller space, you want to let the people in that smaller space out to the larger space before uh, you then enter the smaller room. space and make it smaller. Or on the or the ah, subway, for instance, that see. it's the same kind exactly. of thing. Another perfect example. Have you guys ever been to Japan, by the way? You want to talk about polite. It's like nobody moves off of that platform until everybody in that subway car wow. has left. The Emily Post Institute has an embassy there, actually. <laughs> yeah. That's why. They don't need you. Why would you have an embassy there? <laughs> well, that, it's the work they've done there. That's, we started them. That's why Japan's so polite. <laughs> no. I see. Thank you, Post. <laughs> All right. We have another question. Uh, this comes from Tommy in Durham, United Kingdom. Ah. Once again, asking Ooh. for you guys. Maybe one for Lizzie and Dan Post. I work at a university and interact with people from all over the world and from many different religious backgrounds. The problem is, I never know what to do if someone sneezes. Bless huh. you often seems inappropriate, ah. but it also seems like I need to do something to acknowledge the sneeze. Because bless you seems religious. Yes. What if you're talking to an atheist and you don't know? To me, that's, that is a piece of language that's entered general usage. You're, you're pretty safe saying bless you to somebody who sneezed, whether or not you ascribe to a particular tradition or not. I mean, sure, the rare disgruntled person might say, oh. I don't need your blessings. <laughs> How dare say, you? Say, sorry. Can't we just go with Gesundheit? Nobody even knows what that means. It's like Gesundheit. Doesn't, right? what's the one that, <laughs> that the, one in some other language means like sneeze the devil out or something crazy like that. Wow. Like, and then there, what is it, the, the French call it the little, the, the what do they no, say? No, no, that is an orgasm. And you can say bless you if you want, because if you're that close to the person, then they're probably okay. Yeah. But they're kind of related, right? <laughs> sure. Oh man, it's true. Wow. They are blessed in some way. My favorite etiquette. All right, here's a, here's another. Let's get out of here immediately yes. into another <laughs> listener call. Uh, this is a gentleman who called us the other day. My name is Adam. My etiquette question is: When is it appropriate to tell someone that their underwear is showing? This comes up for me a lot. I work at a restaurant with a lot of bar seats, and there's times when a woman's underwear is visible to the entire restaurant and or a man. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how to gracefully handle this and when to intervene. That's an interesting right. question. This is actually a real, this is a real dilemma. I feel that sometimes when I'm sitting at a bar, I'm spending half of my time making sure that I'm not doing that, you know? Right. Depending on the height really? of the stool and stuff, yeah. Are you a low-rise hipster? I am a little bit of a low-rise hipster. <laughs> that is true. What do we you do? You just eliminate the problem by getting new bar stools that have, like, backs on them. Oh, so it's the see. restaurant that's no. the restaurant that's being employed. I don't know what I would do. I mean, okay, I we, for some reason, in our lovely little town of Burlington, celebrate Mardi Gras on a Saturday during Lent. But it is the <laughs> second largest Mardi Gras, apparently, in the country. Wow. And um, there was a guy standing in the group next to me, and his fly was undone. And oh, I waited man. till I had a moment where I could go up to him. And I just said, look, you know, I'd want someone to tell me, so I'm going to tell you that your, your zipper's undone. And he was like, oh, my God, you're the best person out here today. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there's no – but in a restaurant – Yeah, he – well, he works at the restaurant, right? That's the thing yeah. is that he's employed yeah. at the restaurant. And that's like, oh, man, I don't know. Because you're not going to get a moment theoretically, if no one says anything, the person might not feel shame ever, right? Because ever, they right, go. exactly. They know. That's the lens. But, and yeah. that's, that's the problem because if you bring it up, which seems like the nice thing, like, hey, excuse me, um, yeah. your underwear's showing. 
uh, that could make them uncomfortable. And they, but, yep. but, but on the other hand, I don't like the idea that you're withholding information. Right. And you're subjecting everyone else in the restaurant right. to yeah. it. I'm going to go on a limb and say, Adam, that if you if you really feel the need to tell someone, you know, couch it with that phrase of, I would want someone to, to say this to me if, it, if mm. the situation were reversed. But other, you know, I don't know. Dan, do you have any other thoughts I, on, I, on how I to handle it? I think you're nailing it. To me, it's broccoli on the tooth. If you save Whoa. them some embarrassment. So different from broccoli on the tooth. But if you save them the embarrassment, <laughs> mention it. And this is why you guys are etiquette pros. You're, you have like a whole rubric. You're like, this is a classic broccoli on the tooth. By the way, broccoli on the tooth, that's a, a nice acronym, B-O-T-T. You should just shorten that. Ooh. Okay. It's a bot. <laughs> a little bot moment. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post sending thank you so much as usual for your wisdom. Oh, thank you. It's, it's always the best to be on the show. Yeah. And Daniel, your underwear show. <laughs> Luckily, it's the radio. No one cares. Eavesdrop. Marissa Silver first made waves as a filmmaker, winning a grand jury prize at Sundance. In the last decade, she's transitioned to writing, earning acclaim for her short stories and novels. Today, we overhear an audio snapshot of her latest work. Hi, my name is Marissa Silver, and my new novel is called Mary Coyne, and is a novel based on the famous photograph called Migrant Mother, which was taken during the Depression by Dorothea Lange. You've probably seen the photo before. It's that iconic image where the woman is holding a baby and surrounded by her two children and staring downward. Um, It's sort of the most iconic photograph of the Great Depression. What I'm going to read to you now is the only moment in which these two women meet, the taking of the famous photograph. The photographer is called in this book Vera Dare, and the subject of the photograph is Mary Coyne herself. My name is Vera Dare, she said. Do you mind if I take your picture? I'm not with any strikers, if that's what you think. I don't want problems. No, that's not it. I take pictures to show the government how things are so that they will help people like you. People like you, Mary thought. Her kids, Della and James, stood near her, wary of the stranger. Her daughter, Ellie, stayed in the rocker, playing with her hair. Would it be all right then? The woman asked. I guess, she said, hardly paying attention. All she could think about was her baby and getting liquid into him so that he didn't dry up. I've got to feed this baby. Go ahead, the woman said. Mary was coaxing her nipple into his mouth when she heard the click of the camera. She looked up, surprised. What was it about some things happening that made it seem almost unbelievable that they had happened at all? She wanted to tell the lady to stop what she was doing, but it was already done. And what was the difference anyway? Mary felt the baby's lips go flaccid around her skin. She shook him a little bit to try to get him to focus but she knew it would do no good. The woman stepped forward and took another picture. How old are you, if I may ask, she said. 32, Mary said. She licked her finger and rubbed it over the baby's dry lips. How many children do you have, she said. You never knew what a stranger's questions really meant. How many kids do you have could mean, how much food do you have with you, and if I send my kids by at supper time, will you feed them? Where is your man, might mean, is there anybody to protect you, or would you be easy to rob? Seven, Mary said. Why had she answered? The woman squinted at Mary as if she was trying to see something particular, the way Mary did when she searched for a knit in her children's hair. Mary felt self-conscious, as if she was failing at something she hadn't even known she was trying to achieve. Where are the others, the woman said as she focused her camera. 
Radiators busted. They went into town to get it fixed. What was it about this woman and her camera that made it seem like she had the right to know everything about Mary's life? Food is scarce, the woman said. What do you live on? Killed birds and frozen vegetables. You have much work lately? Not lately. That's the story I hear everywhere I go, the woman said. The story, Mary thought. A poor woman holding a sick baby, two sniveling children and a girl wishing she had movie star hair. What story should she tell this woman? I have a man who will leave one day? I have a girl who likes Necco wafers? The baby let out a miserable cry. She wished she'd asked Earl to pick up some medicine in town, but she hadn't thought clearly. She should have told him to forget about the radiator, that the baby was more important. But without a car, there was no chance of work, and with no work, there was no way to pay for the fever-reducing syrup this baby needed. There was all this useless thinking, what if, as if there were some other choice to make when there were no more choices. There was only whatever was going to happen. Maybe I can get the little ones to turn around, the lady said. That's right, just turn around so you're not looking at me. One of you on each side of your mama, just like that. Della and James did as they were told and faced away from the camera. James leaned into Mary's shoulder to let her know he was there, her protector, her silent guardian. The baby made small, mewling sounds. Mary put her hand to her chin and worried the tiny scar that remained from where her mother had held four quarters in her hand and cut her across the jaw. She looked away. The woman took a photograph. Thank you, she said. I've got what I need. She turned and limped back to her car. Writer Marissa Silver, reading from her new novel, Mary Coyne. To see that iconic shot, Migrant Mother, head to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. So, Rico, can you imagine disliking ramen? I cannot. About as much as I can imagine, you know, disliking air. Exactly. Noodles and broth. It's like a necessity for life. Yeah, it's like food itself. Well, <laughs> well Yuji Haraguchi used to not like ramen, but now he sells it at his pop-up restaurant, and it's become so popular, he's opening a permanent place. That's, that's great. Maybe I should not like something so I can become successful at it. Yeah. I I hate money. Anyway, one reason people dig Yuji's food is because he experiments, and one of his most successful experiments is ramen ravioli. Dang. I'm in. To find out more, I met him at his pop-up in Manhattan. The first thing I asked was, did you really used to hate ramen? Not at all. I really didn't like ramen growing up because there is so much food. It's a big bowl, like a lot of broth, a lot of like... toppings on top of it, it was just too overwhelming. And I, I didn't like the idea of like finishing one meal with one big old bowl. I didn't know there were any people in the world who never liked, who didn't like ramen. Yeah, so that's why I just, my ramen became this time, I guess. <laughs> so yeah, I don't want to have too much food, you know, like you don't want to feel too full after finishing ramen. Yeah, so my ramen is very light, but good flavors, you know. So here I'm looking at your your ramen ravioli. When did you dream this up? I started working at the Italian restaurant in Bushwick. So I was a prep cook for like seven months, and I, I made, you know, pasta, like every day. That was my job. And then when I was making pasta, I was like, why don't I make ramen dough shaped like this? Can you explain the difference between a typical ravioli pasta dough and a ramen dough? 
So ramen dough is made from flour, water, and then uh, this thing called the kansui. Uh, that's right. This is so. This is like a special kind of. Um, it's like a mineral solution. Yeah, you add water with potassium carbonate. So, so this is a water, but as soon as you put this in a ramen dough, it becomes yellow. And so that's what gives it the color. Does it give it any flavor as well? Uh, it gives a color and also gives more dense texture that you don't normally find in uh, pasta. All right, so it makes it chewier ultimately. Yeah. And so then ravioli, I know you can make it a lot of ways, but it's often like dorum wheat, flour, eggs, right? Yeah. Are there eggs in ramen? Traditionally, no. So what makes this ramen ravioli special is you're using this very unique sort of dough for soup noodles, and you're laying it out. And this looks just like a classic ravioli. Yeah, because I use pasta roller and a ravioli uh, mode to make ramen ravioli. How come no one's thought of this before? I was very happy that nobody ever done it before me. <laughs> I was fortunate. Yeah, because people love ramen and people love pasta. Yeah, I was like, why not? On the West Coast, we saw the Korean-Mexican uh, taco explosion. This seems like the East Coast version. <laughs> Guess it's going to be a new trend. All right, so this looks beautiful here. So I'm looking at one ravioli. Yeah, uh, so inside of ravioli, uh, you see uni miso, sea urchin, and a white miso puree. It's, that's inside. And then on top, you have sweet soy sauce with the yuzu kosho uh, tare. Yuzu kosho is spicy Japanese citrus. Okay. And then you have a scallion oil on top of it. And then uh, you have a uh fresh and raw on top. And then for this is a really rich dish. So I have a little bit of blood orange for you know, acidity. To cut the richness. Yeah. All right, well, I want to taste it. Tell me, tell me how to eat it. I suggest you eat all the components in one bite. It's kind of hard, but, you know. No, I, I think I'm up for the challenge. Yeah, I think you should do it. <laughs> this is the size of, like, a, like a shrunken Polaroid. It's not tiny. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go for it. Yeah. Here we go. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't bad, huh? Yeah. Wow. I'm getting the uni. I'm getting the citrus. Was this, what was the, the green leaf on there? Shiso. Japanese. Oh, the shiso, which is almost like a mild mint. Like a mint, yeah. This is incredible. I think there is no border for ingredients. So for Japanese cuisine, in traditional restaurants, even in Japan, they use cheese, they use tomatoes, you know. For there is, I don't think there is any border for ingredients. So I'm just you know, bringing all the ingredients that are seasonal and uh, available in this uh, city and try to incorporate that into my ramen. You serve this so elegantly and it's so well, the, the plate is so well composed, but when you get ravioli, you get like 20 raviolis. <laughs> like cover smothered in sauce. Do you, do you, do people ever say can I can I get like ten of these? Yeah, a lot of people tell me they need more. <laughs> but uh, I my philosophy was ramen to be more a snack, something you eat when you're hungry, but you don't feel too full after you finish it. So this is the right size to me. And it goes back to what you were saying at the beginning. You didn't like ramen as a kid because it was too much, and now this is like an elegant little packet. Uh -huh. So my idea over Yuji Ramen is to open doors to more American people that are not familiar with ramen. So I just, you know, take the broth off for some dish and I make it easy for them with a fork, you know? Yeah. So are you concerned that maybe the Olive Garden or some big Italian restaurant will steal your idea? I mean, they should, yeah. You're okay with that? Yeah, of course, yeah. I'm just introducing a new style, and ramen is just one of my passions, you know? I have many other cuisines from Japan that I want to showcase from the, uh, with the same philosophy. What about uh, ramen yoki or ramen manicotti? 
in progress. <laughs> so, but what would, what's the closest Japanese phrase for ramen ravioli? Ramen ravioli. <laughs> <laughs> So Rico, I feel like we're only months away from Rizania. <laughs> that would be ramen lasagna. Yeah, and it would be delicious. That's is there a Japanese equivalent of Garfield? Because he might be into that. I think I Hello think. Kitty is the Japanese Garfield, isn't she? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Folks, uh, coming up, we hear a new song from Vampire Weekend, and writer slash director Harmony Kareen tells us how he won his favorite award. A hint: it wasn't for filmmaking. When the dinner party download returns, Hello Kitty is the the Garfield of Japan. <laughs> she hates Mondays. <laughs> Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll be hearing a new track from Vampire Weekend, and Cosmo fashion editor Aya Kanai tells us about schizophrenic spring styles. The two identities of Sandra D are being mixed into this fashion trend. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's Harmony Kareen. Back in the 90s, at the ripe old age of 18, he wrote the screenplay for Larry Clark's controversial film Kids, about debauched New York City teens. He has since written and directed a slew of personal and often polarizing films, including Gummo, which prompted some folks at the Venice Film Festival to walk out of the screenings, but won a special jury mention anyway. His new movie is shaping up to be a commercial success, but it is no less provocative. It is called Spring Breakers. The other day I spoke with him about it. And Harmony, welcome. Hey, how's it going, man? Nice to be here. Nice to have you. This movie, it has kind of a simple plot, but it is not a simple movie in a lot of ways. I am curious to hear what your short description of the film would be. I mean, you know, the, you could say in the simplest, if you're just talking about the story, the characters, it's about some girls from middle America, maybe the South somewhere, in college, uh, first year, who don't have any money and are bored and they want to go to spring break. You know, girls that are raised on, like, hip-hop videos and uh, YouTube clips and sure. snort Ridlin, that type of thing, and they're just like, uh, what's Raba? Chicken Shack get some money. They rob a, a restaurant so they can go to spring break. Yeah, they rob a restaurant. They head off to Florida, and it becomes this kind of insane spring break debauchery and all that stuff, and they end up meeting this crazy character played by James Franco named Alien, kind of wild white gangster, this almost like sociopath, this criminal. And then the movie shifts into something completely different. It's like a, almost like a pop poem or this kind of insane fever dream. I knew y'all special from the moment I saw you. It's in your to describe my reaction while watching this and frankly while watching a lot of your movies there are all these lurid things going on and and sometimes things that i would normally feel were really exploitative there are a lot of slow motion shots of like young nude women writhing around for instance but somehow it still feels like art to me there's something about that dreamlike quality you're talking about the photography or something that takes it to a different place 
how aware are you of treading that line? Do you even consider that line being there? Are you following your gut? Or Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, it is an instinctual thing. It's also something that, you know, I think about. It's, it is a line. And at the same time, I don't really care about lines. I don't really <laughs> care about, you know, I don't, boxes. I don't care about any of that stuff. I try to make movies that are a kind of, I don't want them just talked away i don't really want simplistic react i don't want easy i mean it's there it's fun if you want to just watch the film for the surfaces it works that way and i want it to work that way mm. at the same time i want to make films that if you're open and you're receptive to something that's more physical more sensory more hallucinatory then you could also get something in a kind of in a deeper stranger way and it's fun for me to do it in a way where it's also exploring what people consider to be like a base or vile cultural act do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, do you, do you have a moral stance? I mean, even saying that it's a base or vile cultural act, I mean, do you have a moral stance on what the girls do in this movie? Because I spent a lot of the film trying to decide if this was your fantasy or a comment on the kind of vapid fantasies of modern young people. Well, of course. I mean, I personally have my own opinions, but I would never tell you. And the thing is, it's <laughs> like, you know, I don't make documentaries or essays or... I'm trying to make something that's more of like a feeling. It's more like there are these things in the air that I feel connected to, and I'm trying to make sense of them in some ways. It's a painting or something. And so it's important to leave a bit of that undefined, you know what I mean? Mm. Because I want you to be able to dream on it. I just All I ever want to do is just make films that, that are fantastic, that just change you, that like the way I saw... A movie like Husbands when I was a kid, you know, when I was a teenager, that Cassavetes movie. John Cassavetes. And I couldn't even explain to you when I saw the film, I walked out of the film, I didn't even know what it was. But I knew that I had like experienced something. I couldn't even put it in words what it was. But it was like some strange life experience that had just kind of crept up on me. That's the most amazing thing you could do. That's the most amazing thing you could create. What do you think is the ingredient in that movie and in your movies that lends it that character, that sort of ineffable character? It's pages missing in all the right places. It's like the perfect novel with pages missing in all the right places. It's like... It's like all the best jokes with none of the best punchlines. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You want to make films, or I want to make films, where you can't even imagine how they came to exist. Like they kind of made themselves, like they've been there forever. Like they're part of the atmosphere, some type of magic. You cast actors in this film that are not known for edgy roles, specifically Selena Gomez, who's known as like a Disney TV star and a pop singer. And they give surprisingly realistic performances what was it like guiding them through a story that is so sordid? Did they have to be coaxed into anything? No, I mean, I was really surprised and really happy and kind of amazed. I'm still amazed <laughs> at how at the whole thing. But I mean, honestly, you know, I was writing the script and and I was I remember I was writing it during spring break in Florida in the middle of all that stuff while it was happening and wow. Trying, I was listening to pop music and just kind of like eating Subway sandwiches and and Dunkin' Donuts and Mountain Dew and like immersing you yourself. Know, yeah, I just wanted to become that, be the kind of a conduit of that. And then I was like, who could play this part? And I thought it would be amazing if there was a way to get, in some ways, these girls who are kind of culturally connected to that to that world in some way, or representative of that kind of pop mythology, yeah. entrenched in the culture in that way. Because that's, that's what it is. It's about a culture of surfaces. And so I, I put the word out, and yeah. Selena got on an airplane with her mom and flew to Nashville and auditioned for me in my living room the next day, and, and, there, and the rest is history. There was no sort of hesitation? Yeah. You think of these people and these athletes and these, like, pop stars and stuff as corporations, as, like, yeah, right. non, as, as non-people almost, as, like, you know... Brands. Brands. And so it's, the shocking part is actually 
is anytime you see someone step outside that, anytime you see an athlete actually say something, you never have Muhammad <laughs> Ali nowadays. Muhammad Ali couldn't exist. They'd be too worried about their Nike deal. Yeah. So that's the surprising thing is that these girls were at a point in their life and willing to kind of experiment with their career. They realize, you know, there's a movie, but it is a surprise. I was like, you know, I couldn't believe it. I thought <laughs> up until this point, I'd always had this feeling that like, even if they wanted to do something of mine, that all their agents and managers and people would just be like, no there's way, no way, man, you got to do a <laughs> Kentucky Fried Chicken commercial, but you can't do that. It's cool. I, I still can't believe it. It's, it's amazing. Anyway, all right. We have two questions that we ask all guests on our show. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? A question that maybe you're asked too often. A question I'm asked too often. I guess people always ask me about those films I used to make where I was getting into fights. With who? Uh, I, I used to make these movies. I tried to make a movie once where I thought it would be the greatest comedy ever. It would just consist of me getting it beaten up. <laughs> I wanted to fight every single demographic of person, like a lesbian, a, a Greek. But I thought the repetition of the violence would just be hilarious, you know, like a guy slips on a banana peel and hits his head. It is pretty Warner Brothers, kind of. Yeah, so, I, you know, this is about 12 years ago. I was probably trouble back then, doing a lot of narcotics and things. And, and, and yeah. I, But I was at the same time, I was just so excited. I wanted to make this film, and I wanted it to play in all the shopping malls and stuff. And so I only got nine fights in, in and I was, like, thrown in jail and stuff, so... Wow, which would explain why you wouldn't want to be asked about it. So let me move on to our second question, which actually that answer could be used as the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Tell us something. This is more of an order, really. Tell us something we don't know. And this can be anything about yourself or about the world at large, some piece of trivia that would blow people's minds at a dinner party. Um, that like, uh, I don't know. I got like third place in a pantomime contest when I was like uh, 12. Marcel Marceau type mime? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd never done it before, but uh, there was like, a, it was an international pantomime contest and I lived right up the street. And I think I skateboarded up and as a joke, I just went out on stage. I took a number. I guess I like threw out these moves that were pretty incredible. <laughs> and out of out of like 1,500 people, <laughs> I still have this trophy. So third place pantomime, Belmont College. <laughs> And, Brendan, this is, of course, a tune by the electronic music star Skrillex. Yes. Whose music is all over Spring Breakers. And between this and Selena Gomez, I think this is the first movie ever that will draw both college frat partiers and Cassavetes fans. Oh, yeah. United at make, last. Should make for some interesting conversations in the lobby. Yeah, or fights. <laughs> yeah. Big brawl. Espresso body shots. <laughs> It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where an expert schools us on a dinner party-worthy topic. Since it's the first week of spring, we thought it made sense to get schooled on spring fashion, so we asked Aya Kanai, the newly minted fashion director at Cosmopolitan Magazine, to be our tutor. Aya, welcome. Thank you. What do you think we're going to be seeing fashion-wise this spring? The first thing I want to talk about are crop tops and M-slits. All right. One at a time. Crop yeah, we'll tops take are one like, at They're a like time. those half tops that women wear, and you can see their midriff. Right. So okay. crop tops, we saw them at Balenciaga. Mm -hmm. We saw them at Rocha and okay. Chloe. So when I hear the word crop top, I picture someone wearing a football jersey cut in half. I have a feeling you're talking <laughs> about something different. Um, that could be the case, but 
When you see it at Balenciaga, you're, we're talking about a beautifully tailored crop top that has this crisscross in the front mm. and is all placed atop a kind of high-waisted trouser. So is there belly button exposure? There's a band of skin, but it's not. it doesn't reach below or at the belly button. It's above there. Tasteful crop tops. Tasteful crop tops, yes. All right. I You'll didn't know they were possible. Coming soon to stores near you. <laughs> and what about now? Now, the second part of this was the M cut? M slits. The M slit. What okay, is that? so everyone is going to remember when Angelina Jolie wore a Versace gown on the red carpet and had her leg. There was that full high length. slit and you could see her leg. Exactly. Yes. So imagine that, but on both sides. Oh, so you see the letter yes. M? All right. Okay. Yes. So at all of these brands, we've been seeing these M slits, and sometimes it's done on a full length skirt, and sometimes it's done on a shorter skirt. I think that the way that we saw it on Wait, the red. What is left if you put it on a short? If you do a short skirt, then you just kind of have like a loincloth. Okay. I mean, you said it, <laughs> not me. So we're going primitive this spring. It's not so much primitive, and I would never recommend wearing a crop top with your M slit <laughs> skirt. Because but you brought them up together. I know, but I just thought that when we're talking about trends and the way that um, fashion is revealing itself, so to speak, mm. for spring 2013, mm. these are the ways that it, are, it is happening, mm. but don't do it together. All right. So M slits and crop, crop tops. tops, both tastefully done, are going to be around. What's another trend you're seeing? Awning stripes. Awning, like in front of outdoor restaurants, when it starts to rain, you crank it out? Right. So the classic striped sailor boat neck shirt, it's become a staple in every woman's wardrobe. And designers are taking it to the next level by broadening those lines and making it into like almost like this burglar stripe awning looking. Wow. So like are we talking two inches, three inches? Well, I mean, it depends. You can see it on the runway at Marc Jacobs, at Moschino, mm -hmm. a very cool Swedish brand called Acne. Um, and it's kind of like if you want to get your Hamburglar look going on, <laughs> yeah. you could definitely get into these kind of super wide stripes. It also has a little bit of a fun, more feminine twist because it can be done in this sort of 60s mod flavor. That's with, what I was picturing, yeah, like with, Jean Seberg or something Yeah, like, like this kind of like A-line dress yeah. with a super wide stripes. All right, so we're seeing M slits, crop tops, awning stripes. Mm -hmm. I love that name. That's very colorful. What, are, what, else, what else are we going to see this spring? Uh, the last thing I wanted to tell you about is a little bit more of um, a styling element that I was seeing walking on the 2013 runways. It's a styling trend that is inspired by Greece. Greece 1 or Greece 2? Greece 1. Olivia Newton-John? Yeah, of course. <laughs> and so... Nothing so against Michelle Pfeiffer, but I mean, okay, let's no, be real. I grew up to Greece 2. So, I'm, so you're thinking... Greece 2 or Greece as well? Greece 2 with Michelle Pfeiffer, actually. <laughs> really? Yeah, I'm younger than Grease One. I am younger than Grease One as well, but Grease One is just like part of the fabric of popular culture. I know, but Grease Two is always on. Grease Two is always on on cable, the cable channel. My parents, the one Bobo cable channel they bought. Right, but the styling of Grease Two is lifted from Grease. Okay, so when you're talking about this style, then we're thinking cardigan sweaters. Well, her initial look mm. is this. Kind of clean, innocent, cut. Yeah. impressionable, yeah. 
young pastel colors sweater set with a Peter Pan collar look. And that's coming back? The two identities of Sandra D are being mixed into this fashion trend. So we have the good Sandra D. Full skirts, cardigans, Peter Pan collar. Okay. Very innocent. And then the bad Sandra D, which is like motorcycle, cropped motorcycle jackets and bustiers and tight pants. So in the fu- we could live in a future where someone's wearing a leather jacket and a crop top and an awning stripe shirt. If I wore that right now, would I be au courant? No. <laughs> <laughs> You're you can't supposed just to combine just, all the trends? No. The point of learning about fashion is about cherry-picking the one or two things that are right for you, your personal style, and your body type, but oh. never to do them all at the same time. This is your third time on our show. I've been doing this wrong the whole time. Well, in fashion and in life, you have to really get in touch with who you are. You're starting to sound like my mom, <laughs> um, who dresses like the bad Sandra D, by the way. I don't believe you. There's no way. (laughs) So, Brendan, how long, I wonder, before we wear actual restaurant awnings for clothes? Oh, I like that. It will happen. Instead of a raincoat, you could have a striped hat with a brim that just cranks out. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a cousin to the beer hat. It's a hat and a contraption. Yeah, people can drink Campari underneath me. And that's the Dinner Party download for this week. Next week, Andy Cohen, producer of Top Chef and host of Bravo Channel's Watch What Happens Live, will be here to answer your etiquette questions. Until then, we'd like to thank the people who help us behave, namely Jackson Musker, our assistant producer. Our interns are Tamika Adams, Davey Kim, and Brittany Martin. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Thanks also to Chris Clark and Brendan Willard. And now, before we leave you, it is time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. In May, Indie Faves Vampire Weekend will release their new album called Modern Vampires in the City. Here's a new track from it. It's called Step. Bon appetit. Back, back, we're back. I used to front like Andrew Watt, Mechanicsburg, Anchorage, and Dar es Salaam. We'll own the New York with champagne and disco. Tapes from LA slash San Francisco. But actually, Oakland and Alameda. Your girl was in Berkeley with a communist reader. Mine was in tune with a boombox and walkman. I was a horrible girl that was back then. Love's the love, the wisdom teeth that I got you on about. I feel it in my bones. I feel it in my bones. I'm stronger now. I'm ready for the house. Such a modest mouth. I can't do it alone. I can't do it alone. Every time I see you in the world, you always step to my girl. That's the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Scusi, un capari, por favore. Okay, no more wearing the awning hat in the studio. That's what? It. People love it. Veloce!